All right, um, has King Lear? Easy, hard, indifferent, fun, horrible. Everyone dies. <laughs> Actually, not everyone dies. One thing you can think about is uh, who doesn't die. Um, but uh, pretty much the first three characters we see die, just so you know. Um, Here's another little handout. We're, um, I hope we're going to get to King Lear today, but we're going to do some more of the, uh, the uh, bucket of poems. Um, anyone need this? Need the syllabus and the poems? Okay, good. Um, okay, I just want to um, look at a couple of more moments in the whole sheaf of poems about um, love personified, um, and then look a little at a little bit more detail instead of going through all these poems, which are amazing, and which uh, if you can only take one um, handout to a desert island, this is the one you should take because these poems are so amazing. Um, if you could take the complete works of Shakespeare, do that instead. Um, but if you can only take one two, two sheet handout, this is what you should do. Um, the um, what we were looking at in looking at the Ben Jonson um, in So Beauty on the Water stood was a kind of personification of love. And um, most of these poems, not all, but most of the poems um, on the sheets here, I picked because they personify love. Um, and the question, what does it mean to personify love? Um, that's something poets like to do. It's something that goes all the way back to Plato, um, probably before Plato, but in the Symposium, which is one of Plato's two great dialogues on love, um, the question of who love is. Um, not the god of love, but love himself. Um, who love is, is... Um, a deep and interesting question. Um, and part of the depth and interestingness of that question is the question, why would we want to personify love? Um, what is it that makes us poets, makes us philosophers, makes us readers of poetry and philosophy um, like the idea of personifying love? Um, and um, you can understand a whole lot of literature if you think about what the impulse to personifying love is. You may feel like that's not the kind of thing you do, um, but it's, you'll find it in popular songs as well as in Plato's Symposium. Um, most famous song probably um, in which love is personified in American music in the 20th century is the Gershwin's Love Walked In. Um, but you guys know Talking Heads, or is that like your grandparents' music? Um, your grandparents' music. Okay. Um, your grandparents had good taste. Talking Heads, yes, David Byrne. Um, now singing with St. Vincent. Um, um, actually, no, but I'm thinking of a Tom Tom Club song. Do you guys know who Tom Tom Club are? Okay, good. <laughs> you do. Who are Tom Tom Club? Yeah, they had a little break with David Byrne, so it's the rest of Talking Heads minus David Byrne. Um, and uh, what is it? Genius of Love. Genius of Love, yes. 
um, love is here right now, love is just around the corner, etc. I could sing it for you, but then you would have to kill me. Um, so I won't. Um, can you sing it? All right. Um, so I want to point out a couple of um, moments as a kind of context for what we'll look at today and which also will um, represent an introduction to the psychological issues in King Lear. I mean, what the psychology that King Lear is about um, is. So um, look at, um, if you have the syllabus, um, look at the poem called Complaint of the Absence of Her Lover Being Upon the Sea. Um, one thing that I'll tell you about this, um, and this is the kind of literary history, which is like um, 1066, 1492, really important to know um, milestone in the history of English literature, um, is that there was a book published um, in Shakespeare's, when Shakespeare, basically about the time Shakespeare was born, slightly later, um, which is now known familiarly as Tottle's Miscellany. And what happened was there was a printer named Tottle um, Edward Tottle, who collected a bunch of poems that were circulating in manuscript. And um, that the, the fuller but not full title of Tottle's Miscellany is um, Songs and Sonnets by Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, and Other. Um, and um, what Tottle did was he collected some of the great lyric poems that people had been writing um, over the last 50 years or so. Um, and the main lyric poet was Surrey, who wrote this poem, Complaint of the Absence of Her Lover Being Upon the Sea. Um, and Surrey was regarded as the great English lyric poet of the first half of the 16th century. I'm only going to this in some, at some length because Shakespeare quotes from songs and sonnets, The Gravedigger in Hamlet. How many people know about The Gravedigger in Hamlet? He's the guy who lies in his grave um, because according to Hamlet, because he's not telling the truth in it. It's where Hamlet gets the skull of Yorick and says, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him. Next word? No. Everyone thinks that it's, it's, it's like play it again, Sam. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. Um, so um, the gravedigger, as he's throwing up skulls and um, digging graves, is singing um, a parody of a song from Songs and Sonnets from Tottle's um, book. Um, and in Henry IV, um, part one, Falstaff um, wishes more than 50 pounds, he wishes that he had his copy of Songs and Sonnets upon him. So it's clear, it's a book that Shakespeare refers to um, twice. It's an important book. Shakespeare, we know that Shakespeare read it um, for that reason. Um, Surrey was um, the poet who um, Tottle was um, promoting in the title. Um, even greater than Surrey was the slightly older poet, Sir Thomas Wyatt. We won't look at his poem, They Flee From Me, but yes, you were responsible for it, so read it at some point. Um, it's one of the great, great poems, great, great poems in um, English lyric. Um, Surrey wrote um, a, um, an elegy for Wyatt when Wyatt died a few years before Surrey did, but Surrey didn't know it was only a few years. Um, with the great first line, Wyatt resteth here that quick could never rest. That is, Wyatt was finally resting, who when he was alive, because quick also means alive, could never rest. 
Um, Wyatt may have been a lover of Anne Boleyn's. Um, he certainly saw her execution. Um, and their, their lives are really interesting. At any rate, Surrey wrote this great poem in whose speaker, whose narrator is a woman. And um, there are not a lot of poems written by men at the time whose speakers are women, but there's some. Um, and one reason just to notice that is one of the very basic things you learn in literature classes, and I'm sure you've um, already known, already learned, but let's be explicit about it, is that you have to distinguish between the narrator or speaker um, or voice of a poem and the poet. Um, sometimes that distinction doesn't have to be um, large, sometimes it does. Um, you can tell that the distinction is marked, that is that the poet wants you to see the distinction, if the poet is writing in a different gender from his or her own. Um, this may come up a little bit in the Elizabeth Bishop poem that we'll get to in a few minutes. But um, the, if, a, if a poet who's, who knows you will know their gender is writing in the voice of a different gender, then that marks from the first the idea that this is not entirely the poet's um, own personal voice. Um, of course, it's not entirely not, because the poet is making the effort of writing it. Um, so there is a spectrum of um, difference between the lyric I, you could say, or the narrative I, um, the person who says I in a fictional work of some sort, and the real person who is using that word I, but not using that word I to refer to themselves. Um, you'll see that this also is the groundwork or substrate for something we'll talk about a little bit later um, in the couple of pages from Freud, which are just unutterably amazing pages um, that we'll get to. Um, so all I want to, pay, all I want to um, call your attention to in this wonderful poem is um, the fourth stanza. It's at the bottom of the left-hand page. Um, so what's happened is the speaker is um, worrying about her lover who is away on ship. She doesn't know what will happen to him. Will he be shipwrecked? Will he return to her? If you've seen widow's walks in um, Salem or anywhere else on the um, seacoast in New England, the reason they're called widow's walks is they're where women whose husbands were out on sea would stand looking out into the ocean waiting for them to come back or wondering what was happening. So they're an architectural feature um, that are now provide a lot of quaintness, but the quaintness of, uh, of anxiety and real and deep anxiety from 150 years ago. So she's talking about the happy dames, everyone else, and says to them, when other lovers in arms across rejoice their chief delight, drowned in tears to mourn my loss, I stand the bitter night in my window where I may see before the winds how the clouds flee. So what she's saying is she's looking at the weather, she's worrying, she's um, looking out into the nighttime to see um, whether there are storms threatening her beloved. Um, and she's seeing before the winds how the clouds see. And then this great line, probably the greatest line Sari ever wrote, Lo, what a mariner love hath made me. So love has made her a mariner. 
love has made her into a sailor. And it's that she is looking at the weather the way a sailor does. That's the literal and obvious meaning of it. But notice that what's happened here is that somehow this is what love, at least half personified, has done to her. Um, love has caused her, love has made her into a mariner. Um, that's something that has happened with her interaction with love or with love's taking her and making her into a mariner. The obvious complexity of this is that a male poet is writing in a female voice about um, a woman who feels that she's been made into a male sailor um, by love. But it's also that the hope here, and I hope you can feel this, the hope here is that if love is doing that to her, if love is making her a mariner, then love is actually a kind of god, a kind of figure, a kind of um, anthropomorphized spirit in control of things. And if love is in control of things, that's a moment of hope for her, a moment of safety. Um, so here I just want to observe now much more specifically now, this isn't a general comment, but it's a comment about, let's call it Elizabeth Bishop's reading, that what um, Surrey is doing here, um, what he's done, not what he's doing, it's not, let's see what I can do, oh, I can have this amazing insight that love and shipwreck go together, is he's written a poem in which love and shipwreck go together. Not the first and not the last. Um, when people talk about a marriage on the rocks, um, that doesn't mean a drink that you would want to order, unless you're really perverse. Um, what it means is a shipwrecked marriage, a marriage that has hit the rocks, that's sinking. So it's a minor metaphor or minor trope, you could say, um, within literature, within culture. It's not that Sari is thinking, okay, I'm going to put that metaphor to, to use. It's just a kind of natural thing um, that a ship is a place where you live, but also a place of danger, that um, things are never stable there. Um, but um, what Sari is doing is, is not a variation on that. It's just that that connection, which is not a hard connection to make, um, he makes in this really fantastic way. Lo, what a mariner love had made me. The second or even third-rate British Romantic poet, Robert Southey, um, who is famous for a couple of poems, but um, is uh, put down by all his friends for being a poet laureate, um, uses this line in a poem of his, um, just takes the line wholesale, um, in quotation marks. He's not, he's not plagiarizing. Um, but it's enough of a line that it haunts the memory, um, and I hope it will haunt yours. I also want to draw your attention to the next poem, The Burning Babe, um, which is written by a Jesuit priest who's eventually executed by Queen Elizabeth because you weren't supposed to be a priest in Protestant England um, under Queen Elizabeth, and certainly not supposed to be trying to convert people to Catholicism as he was. Um, this was before um, he was arrested, um, actually imprisoned for a couple of years um, because he had powerful friends as well, but eventually tortured and killed. Um, and the title, in a way, is the thing that should grab you, the burning babe. 
uh, 16th century poem, The Burning Babe. Um, and we don't even have to go through the poem, though. It's worth it. But the idea is that um, he has a vision um, in line. He sees a fire in the snow, and he lifts up his eyes um, in line three. And lifting up a fearful eye to view what fire was near, a pretty babe all burning bright did in the air appear. So he sees this babe, this baby, burning in the night air. Um, he has no idea why that's happening, um, but he works it out. Um, the babe says, alas, quoth he two lines later, but newly born in fiery heats I fry, yet none approach to warm their hearts or feel my fire but I. That babe will turn out to be Jesus, just so you know. Um, my faultless breast, the furnace is, the fuel wounding thorns, that is the crown of thorns that Jesus puts on. Love is the fire and sighs the smoke, the ashes, shame and scorns. The fuel justice layeth on and mercy blows the coals. So here you get just a whole bunch of allegorical um, emblems, um, which is a kind of come down from the amazing image of just this burning child in the night. Um, but that's okay if you have amazing images. Um, the great French literary critic Maurice Blanchot, and this is something that it would be well to keep in mind um, in his amazing essay on inspiration. He's a 20th century critic. He died in 2003, I guess. Um, has an essay on inspiration where he says, to sum it up in a couple of tweets, um, that the general standard view is that inspiration leads to the creation of a literary work. That is, that a writer is inspired to write and then writes. So inspiration is the origin of the work, and inspiration is the path to the work. And he says, actually, that's wrong. And any of you who are writers will know this. Probably anyone will know, know this. Um, what happens when you write is you have an inspiration, and then you try to get back to it. Anyone who's written a short story or a poem where the last line was the first thing that's occurred to them, that's a perfect example of that. If you have an amazing last line, then your writing may take the form of trying to get to that last line. You're inspired by the last line. You know what a great last line would look like. Um, and then the task that you will have as a writer is not to screw up that last line by the way you get to it. And that's a hard task, not to screw up a great last line if you come up with one, or a great title if you come up with one, or more generally, a great idea or a great feeling um, for what you might want to do in a poem or a story. Um, you have an idea, and then what will happen, to quote another 20th century critic, um, is you may find that the work is the death mask of its conception. You have an idea, and what you finally produce is the death mask of your idea. Um, the great French poet Paul Valéry in the um, first half of the 20th century has a great line, a poem is never finished, it is only abandoned. So Blanchot's view then is not that inspiration is the path to the work, but that the work is the path you take to attempt to go back to inspiration.
to the inspiration. So for Southwell, or Southall as he's actually pronounced, um, the inspiration was an image of a burning child. An amazing image. And then he starts to explain it, and he doesn't do that good a job. He makes it religious, he makes it allegorical. Every, um, you know, the, the thorns or the fires, the fuel of fires, thorns, and mercy bloweth the coals and all that. We can say whatever. Um, you know, maybe it's powerful, powerful for you. I think for most people it isn't. Um, but you can see what he's doing is trying to say, yes, that image of the burning babe, that's everything. Unfortunately, his idea of how you explain that something is everything doesn't work for us. But the view that that could be everything, that's what to get out of this poem. Go to the next poem, Love Three. It's called Love Three because Herbert wrote three poems called Love. This is the third one. And here, too, love is personified. And um, this is also a religious poem, but Herbert is um, as great a poet um, as you can be without being the very, very greatest of poets. Um, and this is the last poem in um, the one book of poems that he wrote, which are poems of personal experience um, as a believer, um, a very intense personal experience. And this is kind of the culminating poem, um, and it's great. Love bade me welcome. So there's love personified. Love bade me welcome. Love said, come on in. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. So love said, come on in. But I didn't want to. I felt guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, beautiful phrase, quick-eyed, quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. So that question, just by way of footnote, um, is what um, innkeepers would ask. They did it. Um, I actually heard someone still ask that in the 20th century in England, um, where where someone, if you go into a restaurant or a pub or a bar now, um, the um, server may say, "What would you like?" or "What do you want?" If it's a little more casual, or "What will you have?" The English version, at least through the late 20th century. Um, and already in the 17th century is, what do you lack? So the word want in, um, and the word lack are often synonymous. If you live a life of terrible want, that means you live a life of terrible lack. So it's not want. When, someone, when we hear someone say, what do you want, we take that to mean, what do you wish? But originally, it means, what are you missing that I can help you with? Um, are you hungry? Is it that you are in want of food? because I, the innkeeper, can supply you food. Are you in want of a bed? Do you need a bed? I can supply you a bed. So that's, that line is just a very casual, everyday line that love, who's clearly God, as he is in um, the Johnson poem, love is asking, what do you lack if I lacked anything? So the speaker answers, indeed I do. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. That is, do I lack anything? I lack everything. I lack being a person worthy to be here, to be welcomed by you. Love said, you shall be he. Love says that because love shows love to this unworthy guest. I, 
answers the guest. I, the unkind, ungrateful. <clears throat> ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. So the speaker feels so guilty of dust and sin, so unkind and so ungrateful, that not only does he lack um, any 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 um, right to enter, but when love says that's okay, I love you, come in. Um, he says no, I can't even look at you. I am too unkind and ungrateful. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, "Who made the eyes but I?" So, of course you can look at me. I made your eyes. Um, Echoed, of course, in Blade Runner. You Nexus 6. I made those eyes. You guys know the movie? All right. Do you know that Roy, um, Roy's birthday was last week? That went around the internet. It was great. <laughs> Truth, Lord, and Pris's birthday is Valentine's Day. Just, if you missed Roy's birthday, there's still, there's still time for Pris's. <laughs> Truth, Lord, I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. So, okay, you made the eyes, but I marred what you made. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? That is, okay, you did something wrong, but don't you know who bore the blame for what you did wrong? If you don't, well, I will serve. Love is willing to do it, my dear. Then I will serve. If you don't have anyone else to bear the blame for you, I'll do it for you. I'm good enough to bear the blame. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. So it's a wonderful poem. It gets more and more wonderful every time you read it, about being welcomed by love, who is, whose love you don't deserve, whose love the speaker doesn't deserve. But what makes love love is that it doesn't have to be deserved. You know the Robert Frost line about home? Um, do people know that? One of, one, of the, one of the famous Robert Frost lines is, um, it's the death of the hired man, is um, the um, man comes um, back to a place where um, the husband doesn't really want him there. And the husband just kind of rolls his eyes. And he says, I guess home is where when you come there, they have to take you in. Um, so he does take him in, but he's not happy about it. This is not familiar to people. Home is where when you come there, they have to take you in. And then the wife replies, um, now home is something that somehow you haven't, that is, you don't have, to deserve. So you don't have to deserve love. That's what love, it's the, it's the very idea of love, that love isn't a reward for dessert. Love is what makes love love, is that it's not tit for tat. It's not an exchange. It's not, okay, you deserve love, so you get it. Um, that obviously is already at work at the beginning of King Lear. That is the question, do you deserve a kingdom for expressing love? Must you um, express love to get love back? Those are the questions that come up immediately between Cordelia and Lear. Um, Herbert, who knew King Lear, not the person, King Lear died a thousand years earlier. Um, Herbert, who knew the play, 
um, is you know maybe slightly influenced by the play, but influenced um, by tons and tons and tons of thinking about love in poetry, in philosophy, in theology down the ages. But it's consonant with what happens at the beginning of King Lear. Again, I wanted to look at that to look at ways love can be personified and to notice the interesting fact in the Herbert poem that it's, in a way, love doing the personification. That is, it's love made the speaker into a person. Love made the eyes of the speaker. Who made the eyes but I? So love personified is love personifying. That's one of the powerful ideas in the poem. All of this as a kind of intro um, to the two Casabianca poems that I want us to look at. But first, as a background, another burning child. So this is the Freud that you have. And this is from the interpretation of dreams. Um, and Freud, whatever you think about Freud, um, he's one of the great literary writers of all time. Um, whether you think he's right or wrong as a psychologist, and it's clear that he's both, that there are things that he's right about and things that he's wrong about. Um, he is, as a writer um, of fiction, as good a psychologist of fictional characters, let's say, as anyone, as any novelist is. Um, whether he's a good psychologist of real life people, well, any, any good novelist has to be also, because any good novelist has to know what sounds convincing. Um, whether he's a scientist can be a completely different question. Um, but Freud, in the last chapter of the um, Interpretation of Dreams, which is a very long book, as you can see, because we're on page 547 right there, and the last chapter is the longest. Um, Freud, in the last chapter of the Interpretation of Dreams, um, wants to know why we dream, which is the hardest question that he set himself. Um, up until now, he's been talking about why we dream what we dream, why we have the dreams that we do. And some of you probably know that his answer is, it's wish fulfillment. Um, that the reason we sometimes say, um, oh man, it's a dream come true, is that dreams are wish fulfillment. Why nightmares then? Because some of our wishes we don't want to admit to ourselves. Um, and then they only come out as in distorted and nightmarish versions. Um, that's the first 546 pages in two lines. Um, Freud is somewhat more subtle. Um, so now he um, tells a story about another dream, and this is what you have in front of you. And we'll just look at these two pages. Um, among the dreams which have been reported to me by other people, there is one which has special claims upon our attention at this point. It was told to me by a woman patient who had herself heard it in a lecture on dreams. Its actual source is still unknown to me. So he has a patient who goes to lectures about the meaning of dreams by other people than Freud. How dare she? No, he's not really saying that. Its content made an impression on the lady, however, and she proceeded to redream it. That is, to repeat some of its elements in a dream of her own, so that by taking it over in this way, she might express her agreement with it on one particular Point. Um, so we're not get to how she we're not going to get to how she redreams it, but that's an interesting idea that if a dream is powerful enough, you might redream it. Remember what Yeats said and what we were reading yesterday, it was the dream itself 
enchanted me. She hears about this dream, and it's so powerful that she redreams it. That's a good emblem, maybe, of finding literature really powerful, reading it as though you're writing it, which is um, the great classical critic Longinus, um, his definition of the sublime. When you read something sublime, the experience is, he says, well, he doesn't say this part, but he says it's like playing the air guitar. Um, that is, it's so good that you just have to go, even though your guitar is of air. Your guitar is but a guitar of air. Um, but um, what Longinus says is, when you read something sublime, and he's talking about the sublimity in literature, he says, the soul takes a proud flight as though she herself has written what she has only heard or read. So it's if you read and you feel an impulse of exaltation and even pride, as though this is yours. We talked a little bit yesterday about quotation out of context, about why epigraphs to chapters and novels can be so much better out of context than when you see what they're doing in context. Um, one way of saying that is to say, when it's in context, it's just doing whatever work it does in context. But when you see it out of context, you own it in a way that when it's in context, it's just whatever is happening in the narrative, whatever specifics of the narrative are occurring. Um, that's where it belongs, and it's not as good. But out of context, it's you own it. Emerson said, next to the originator of a good sentence, is the first quoter thereof. And he says, people may read the sentence for years before someone thinks of quoting it. But quoting it, that, in a sense, is the place where you're redreaming it, to use Freud's word. So she proceeded to redream it. And then Freud tells us the model dream. The preliminaries to this model dream were as follows. So this is what, what the context was, what was happening. Um, before the dreamer who had the dream dreamt it. A father had been watching, so this is real now. A father had been watching beside his child's sick bed for days and nights on end. After the child had died, that's kind of quick, um, not, ah, the child died, but no, after the child had died, he went into the next room to lie down. He's been so exhausted, so tired. And after the child had died, he went into the next room to lie down, but left the door open so that he could see from his bedroom into the room in which his child's body was laid out with tall candles standing around it. An old man had been engaged to keep watch over it and sat beside the body, murmuring prayers. After a few hours' sleep, the father had a dream that, and then the italics is the dream, um, which is Freud's convention in the interpretation of dreams. All dreams are reported in italics. After a few hours sleep, the father had a dream that his child was standing beside his bed, caught him by the arm, and whispered to him reproachfully, reproachfully, Father, don't you see I'm burning? He woke up. So the dream is over. So that was the dream, that the child comes from the next room, or is just standing beside his bed and says, 
can't you see I'm burning? So there, or don't you see I'm burning? So there's another burning child, um, like the burning babe. Um, Bishop read this. Um, so keep this, again, in uh, mind as what was in mind in Elizabeth Bishop. He woke up, noticed a bright glare of light from the next room, hurried into it, and found that the old watchman had dropped off to sleep. So everyone's falling asleep. And that the wrappings and one of the arms of his beloved child's dead body had been burned by a lighted candle that had fallen on them. So that's the dream and the context of the dream. It would make a great short. The explanation of this moving dream is simple enough. And, so my patient told me, was correctly given by the lecturer. The glare of the light shone through the open door into the sleeping man's eyes and led him to the conclusion, which he would have arrived at if he had been awake, <coughs> namely that a candle had fallen over and set something alight in the neighborhood of the body. It is even possible that he felt some concern when he went to sleep as to whether the old man not, might not be incompetent to carry out his task. So it's one of those dreams where um, the line between being asleep and awake isn't that large. Um, the old man's sleep is fitful. He's kind of aware of what's around him. Um, sometimes we have the, the very, very um, um, narrowing and blurring of that line when you think of times when you don't even know you were asleep. Um, that is, someone says, oh, you fell asleep watching Game of Thrones. And you say, no, I didn't. Hey, what happened to Ned Stark? See, you were asleep. Um, so that's what um, the lecturer says. Um, and then now Freud adds that he has nothing to add, except he does. Nor have I any changes to suggest in this interpretation, except to add that the content of the dream must have been overdetermined. Overdetermined is a technical word in Freud, but it's a really good one to have in life. What overdetermined means is there are, there are a lot of things causing the same outcome. So um, you can overdetermine someone's death by poisoning them as well as stabbing them, as well as strangling them, um, or everyone can pile on, and any of those things can be cause of death. Um, if they're more, if they can all be cause of death, then the death is overdetermined. Um, so here it's um, Freud is saying there are a lot of things that cause the same result in the dream. That's what overdetermination means, when there are many things that could cause the same dream result. So the content of the dream must have been overdetermined, and that the words spoken by the child in the dream must have been made up of words which he had actually spoken in his lifetime and which were connected with important events in the father's mind. Now, Freud gets to say this because he doesn't know, because this is a story that he's heard. So in, in effect, he's interpreting a story, and he's doing it really, really powerfully. And his interpretation is as follows. For instance, I'm burning, which is what the child said, may have been spoken during the fever of the child's last illness. So the child has a fever. He's burning up. And father, don't you see, may have been derived from some other highly emotional situation in which we are in ignorance. Or it could very well be that the child is sick, which is how an, how an interpreter of Freud's is going to interpret this, Jacques Lacan. The child is sick and goes to the parent's room 
and says, I'm sick, and they say, go back to sleep. And the child says, can't you see that I'm burning? But having recognized that the dream was a process with a meaning, and that it can be inserted into the chain of the dreamer's psychical experiences, that is, psychological experiences, we may still wonder why it was that a dream occurred at all in such circumstances when the most rapid possible awakening was called for. So why, if the child's body is burning and the father realizes that, and realizes it enough that he can actually think the words that the child's body is burning, why does he sleep through it? Why does he continue sleeping instead of waking up? That's Freud's question. Why do you wake through the alarm that is telling you to get to the exam that if you fail, the rest of your life will be miserable? Why do you hear that alarm instead as people ringing a bell celebrating the wonderful party that you're at? Um, so you obviously hear it. Why do you ignore it? And instead, this is Freud's big question, bring it into the dream as um, a part of the dream since it's important to you and since if you were awake, you would immediately wake yourself up. Think of the beginning of Four Weddings and a Funeral um, and the way Hugh Grant, um, whom we all love, right, um, oversleeps. He's good in, um, is, is he in the Man from Uncle? Am I remembering right? Is he in the Man Oh, well, anyhow, Hugh Grant, yay. Uh, Freud somewhere, but I'm not going to find it now, has a cartoon of a um, babysitter who falls asleep while she's babysitting, and the child um, who didn't have very good diapers back at the end of the 19th century um, is screaming. And as the more the child screams, the more she's dreaming of a ship that's going on a larger and larger ocean. And the, sh and the child's scream is turned into um, the ship blowing off steam. Of course, the ocean is the pee that the child is about to let loose. Um, and so she knows what it is, but she turns it into, ah, dream water. Um, that ship is going to be wrecked, too. Um, so why, Freud says, does he keep dreaming when he should be waking up? And here, he goes on, we shall observe that this dream, too, contained the fulfillment of a wish. The dead child behaved in the dream like a living one. So the reason he kept dreaming was that the child was alive in the dream. The dead child behaved in the dream like a living one. That was his wish. He himself warned his father, came to his bed, and caught him by the arm. Um, I should tell you that the he is not clear in German. Um, the word for child in German is gender neutral. Um, and so if you read this in German, it's it. Um, it's the translator who's assuming the child is a boy. Um, and almost all readers of Freud assume the child is a boy. Um, and I think that's an interesting assumption. Um, but we don't know. Um, so he himself warned his father, came to his bed and caught him by his arm, just as he had probably done, or just as it had probably done, on the occasion from the memory of which the first part of the child's words and the dreams were derived. So the child is waking up the father, and um, it's the father who is dreaming that the child is waking him up, and therefore wants to keep dreaming. I want to keep dreaming that the child is waking him up. For the sake of the fulfillment of this wish, the father prolonged his sleep. 
by one moment. The dream was preferred to a waking reflection because it was able to show the child as once more alive. So it was the dream itself enchanted him. If the father had woken up first and then made the inference that led him to go into the next room, he would, as it were, have shortened his child's life by that moment of time. Um, so that single moment is another moment of life for the dream child, for the fictional child. Um, with that in mind, take a look at the two Casabianca poems. Uh, we won't read through the Felicia Hemans one, but what you need to know about it is it's about a loyal child. Um, the story that she's basing it on is that there was a French commander whose son was part of his crew, a French sea captain whose son was part of his crew, and the captain went below decks and told the child to keep watch on deck. Um, then a cannon hit the ship and killed the father. The child who had been called to keep watch stayed on deck, not knowing that his father had um, been killed and remained faithful to his post. He kept saying to his father, can I go now? The ship is singing, is sinking and singing, sinking. And the father um, didn't answer, so he went down with the ship. Uh, he was 12 years old. Um, young Casabianca, the, the name of the um, father and son, the last name was Casabianca. So he goes down, um, last two stanzas of um, the Hemans poem, there came a burst of thunder sound, the boy, oh, where was he? Ask of the winds that far around with fragments strewed the sea, because the ship is, has been hit again and is sinking, with mast and helm and pen and fair, that well had borne their part. But the noblest thing that perished there was that young, faithful heart. So how many people knew that poem before? This used to be the one of the poems that you had to memorize in grade school in both England and America. It was a standard back in the, back in the days when we didn't have ATMs and your internet and stuff like that. We memorized poems. We didn't Google them. And you liked it, because that's the way it was. So this was a poem that everyone knew. Um, everyone who had a three R's education knew um, in the first half of the 20th century. It was a staple of schoolroom memorization. Um, so Bishop is picking up on that. And I think on everything else um, that we've looked at, and other things, and has this great personification of Love, a very deep and mysterious poem. Um, like all deep and mysterious poems, you will never get to the end of it, but you can get some way into it anyhow. Loves the boy, stood on the burning deck, trying to recite. The boy stood on the burning deck. Loves the son, stood stammering elocution while the poor ship in flames went down. Loves the obstinate boy, the ship, even the swimming sailors, who would like a schoolroom platform too, or an excuse to stay on deck, and loves the burning boy. So notice at the end then, we have the burning boy again, from the burning boy in, sub, sub, in Subtle to the burning boy in Bishop. Um, that idea, then, 
Um, the least that you can say about this, if you're already worrying about paper topics, say more. But the least that you can say about it is that this is a poem about some erotic disaster, some terrible thing happening. The ship that's going down here is the ship of her relationship with, the, with her life companion, with the woman she loved. Um, that's the ship that's going down. Um, and yet, the fact that it feels like a ship going down, that she doesn't want it to go down, that she's somehow remaining faithful, that love is remaining faithful, that love represents the way she's remaining faithful, that she's still writing poems, stammering out elocution, producing poems while the poor ship in flames went down, wanting it not to go down, being obstinate, that love is all of that, that she cares, that it's the worst thing in the world. The idea of a shipwreck when used about a love affair or about marriage is the idea that it's terrible for both people, not, okay, I no longer love you, so I'm leaving, which is what Bertrand Russell famously said. He was out on a bike ride once, and he says this in his autobiography. I was riding my bike, and as I was riding, I suddenly realized, ha, I no longer love my, my wife. So he went home and told her that that was so and left. Um, so that might indicate to you that he never loved his wife. Um, but this is about um, how if, if the marriage on the rocks, if a disastrous relationship is miserable for both, if the breakup is miserable for both, um, like Richard and Linda Thompson's album, Shoot Out the Lights, um, as your grandparents, um, then there's still love there. It may not be happy love, it's love's the burning boy. And what is she doing? At least she's prolonging it for one more moment. All right, we did talk about King Lear a little bit. Um, <laughs> what you should do over the weekend, since we don't meet again until Wednesday, um, is read the whole play. Um, and then there won't be spoilers. And um, we will talk about it. We obviously will only talk about the first half or so on Wednesday. But it would be good for you to get the whole play read over the long weekend. Okay, have a good weekend.